Years ago, when I was in uh, pastoring in California, I led a monthly Bible study at a local youth uh, prison. Uh, so I went out there once a month, uh, and uh, right off the get-go, they assigned me the felon ward. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and so I, I went out there for years and, and taught, so all the, the prisoners knew me. Uh, and uh, the first time I did it, uh, I, I formed a circle outside the guard booth of all the chairs. Instead of putting them in rows, I put all the chairs in a circle. Uh, and I stood in the middle with all the felon, felons around me. Uh, and the guards freaked out. Big six foot seven guard came out screaming, you're crazy, you're going to die. And I'm like, well, what, what? You can't put yourself in the middle of all those felons? Why not? Well, if they are to grab you, man, we can't get to you. And I said, I think it'd be okay. And so for a number of years, I stood in the middle and would walk around and talk to all the, the Bloods, the Crips, the Notenos, the, all the different gangs uh, and talk to them. Uh, and they would have me pray for their court dates. And one of my friends was the, a judge in the area. So I knew if they ever got my friend Bernie, it was over for their lives. They, they, they needed prayer. Uh, and so... Um, and so I had a, I had a good time uh, ministering to them and talking to them about uh, truth. Uh, but there, I, I haven't even really shared any stories in the 14 years that I've been here of that time from all I learned from those, those uh, young men. Uh, but one sticks out that is most appropriate. There, uh, there were two guys one day. Uh, one was an older prisoner. His name was uh, Enrique. Uh, we'll call the other guy Juan. And Juan was a younger guy. Uh, and so after the church service, I would, I would walk around, you know, hey, what can I do to pray for you? And, you know, they would always want, you know, you to pray for them. And so, uh, so I went over to talk to the, uh, these two guys. They were sitting together. Uh, and um, I was, I was, Juan had lots of questions, you know, just spiritual questions about his life. And it's all messed up and, you know, how to get his life on track. So I was just sharing with him, you know, on how to, how to you know, get his life, you know, in a, in a place where uh, he has a relationship with God. God would bless him, make better decisions, blah, blah, blah. So every time I would share something positive with Juan Enrique, who's slouching down in his chair with his long ponytail, uh, with his arms crossed, he, he would say, hey, man, that's not true. Don't do that. And don't, don't listen to him. <laughs> and that went on for like 15, 20 minutes. So if you were me, what would you do with Enrique? You know, I grew up on the border. Most of my friends are Hispanic. I, you know, I hung out with these guys. I grew up with them. And so I, I kind of thought I understood Enrique to a point because he had been in many church services, but I'd never seen him be like this. And every time I say something positive, he says something negative. And so I just stopped the whole conversation with Juan. And I just, I talked to Enrique. I said, hey, look, man, uh, how come every time I say something positive to Juan, you say something negative? I, I'm trying to help this young guy get on his feet so when he gets out of here, he makes better decisions. And you're just being totally negative, and it's just not helping at all. <laughs> he looks at me and he goes, hey, I'm helping him, man. I'm using reverse psychology. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm like, uh, Enrique, uh, man, that's not working. <laughs> You need to do something else. If you're trying to encourage him by degrading him, not a great method. Uh, wouldn't you agree? Now, there are some people who believe my negativity is what builds people up. Sometimes people pa parent like this. Uh, sometimes pastors pastor like that. Um, sometimes the leaders lead like that, you know? Uh, but if, if you want to study a great leader who knew how to build people up and encourage them and put wind in their cells, that's Paul. So Paul was not Enrique. Uh, he wasn't trying to downgrade the Thessalonian church. He's trying to build them up. And notice what he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 11. 
uh, at the end of the book. We'll get there in a few months. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing. Uh, encourage one another. Uh, it's interesting. That's an imperative in the Greek text, which is what Paul was using. Uh, that's what he spoke. Uh, and it's an imperative, which means it's not a suggestion. So he's telling you, if you are a Christian, your job daily is to encourage people around you, other Christians around you. Uh, and encouragement, when you do that, builds them up. So what was Enrique doing? <laughs> the opposite of that. He's trying to build up the guy by tearing him down, and that wasn't encouraging him at all. And so I don't know what your method is for encouragement, but it may not be the Enrique model. Um, so Paul, a great encourager. So there's much we can learn from him. Uh, and we will look in the next two weeks over the first, uh, these verses 2 to 10. But we're just going to look at verses 2 to 5 today because there's so much in there, as you can imagine. Paul's going to talk about building up believers by focusing on their spiritual gains. Not like Enrique, their weaknesses. No, you focus on the gains that they've made. It's a, it's a positive focus. So when you uh, encourage somebody by giving them encouraging words, you are binding up their wounds from life. Uh, you're putting wind in their sails that might have gone limp because of adversities. Uh, you're giving them hope for the future. You're there to pump them up and build them up in Christ. And that is exactly what Paul's going to do. So to understand why he starts out with encouragement, remember uh, the context of what was happening historically. Paul had come to Thessalonica from Philippi, where he had been uh, beaten and imprisoned uh, for his preaching the gospel in Philippi. He traveled over to Thessalonica, spent three weeks uh, uh, witnessing in a Jewish synagogue. Uh, they then went crazy all over him, drove him out of town. They, they took him uh, off the Ignatian Way, the freeway going through town, and sent him off the little town of Berea to kind of lay low. He saw another Jewish synagogue uh, and engaged all the Jews there with who is Jesus. Uh, and so this is what's been going on. So this persecution is, is following Paul. Wherever he goes, uh, the Jewish people are persecuting him uh, because he's daring to say that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, some of the Jews came to Christ, as we know, but the majority of them, uh, they didn't want Paul in the area. So if they persecuted the founder of the church in Thessalonica, ipso facto, they're going to persecute the Christians. So Paul has traveled from Berea to uh, Athens, down to Corinth. Uh, and then he uh, has uh, dispatched Timothy to give him a, a word on the Thessalonians. Uh, and he's come back to Corinth and he's told Paul, hey, they're doing great. They're doing great. Now, this is, a, this is for pastors that may be here. Um, leading the church just isn't about teaching truth. I mean, it's about living truth and it's about caring for people, uh, loving people. That was Paul. He cared about them. He loved about them enough to send Timothy back to get a word. How are they doing? Because I know they're being persecuted because they persecuted me. So what he's going to do in these verses, he's, he's in his opening letter, he's going to take these Christians that are in a cultural meat grinder for their faith because the Jewish people in the synagogue that got saved are now part of this new church. And the Gentiles who were God-fearing uh, Jews who became Jews by going to the synagogue and the flat-out pagan Gentiles that got saved, they formed this new church. They're all new Christians. And they're being persecuted for their faith. And Paul says... I'm going to write you a letter in light of Timothy's word about how you're doing, but I want to first start out by encouraging you. So when you think about your life, are you Enrique? And that might be your name, so it's not, you know, but, but that's okay. But am I of the Enrique type, negativity to build people up? That's not working. It's all about focusing on the positive gains. So we're going to look at three things that Paul did, that th three things that we can do uh, as we look to build up other believers. Uh, number one, verse two. 
He says, uh, you need to mention their place, the place of Christians around you. He says, we give thanks to God always for you. How do we do this? Well, making mention of you in our prayers. Uh, he mentions their place. Uh, the we denotes Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. So he says, we as a missionary team, when, when, we, when we think about you, we are giving thanks to, to God for you. Um, he says, we, we do this always. Is that reasonable? Uh, that's probably hyperbolic. What is hyperbole? Overstating something to state a point. So he probably didn't always do this because he was founding churches all over the place. There's no way he could constantly pray to, you know, 24 hours a day and manage the churches and do his tent making work. So that's probably a bit hyperbolic. Not that you don't do it. You probably use hyperbole too. Um, and so he's, he's saying, but, but we, do, we do pray for you. We do thank God for you. Um, now he says, we pray always for all of you. Uh, think about this. He's praying for everybody that's in that church, the converted Jews, the converted God-fearing Gentiles, and then the flat-out pagan Gentiles who left polytheism to become Christians. He says, when I think about you all by name, we pray for you. I, I, I make mention of you in my prayers. You have to stop and ask yourself, how much is my prayer time spent and devoted to give me thanks for Christians that I know? I mean, that I call them by name. And then how long would that take you in prayer? Because Paul says, when, I, when I'm do, I, we give thanks to you, you know, we mention you, you know, quite frequently in, in our prayer lives. So think about, he's sitting there with Silvanus and Timothy while they're in Corinth. Uh, he gets the word back from Timothy how great the church is doing, uh, some of their trials and tribulations. But, but he says, don't ever forget that no matter how bad your life is going and being persecuted in Thessalonica, we are always before the Father's throne praying for you Amen. by name. You know, nothing is greater that you could do for another Christian to tell them, when I think of you, I pray for you. I mean, his list must have been long. Lord, we thank you for Yehuda. We thank you for Joshua. We thank you for Deborah. We thank you for Lydia. We thank you for et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We thank you, God, for each of those people. I stopped and you know, had to analyze myself this week. In my prayer life, how many of you, because there's 3,000 of you, that would take my whole week. But, but when I do think of you, do I pray about you? Yeah. I mean, sometimes in the middle of the night, you know, the older you are, the more you get up in the middle of the night, correct? Yeah, we should just start calling each other, you know? <laughs> you know, because many of you tell me, yeah, I was up at three too. Yeah, yeah. You know, so a lot of times when I get up, it's just a name pops into my mind and I, and I, and I pray for you. And sometimes I'll email people and tell you, yeah, you know, I prayed for you because uh, I do. But, but we could always do better at that, can't we? You know, and so my challenge to you is if you want to build up other believers, let them know that when you think about them, uh, you are praying for them. Because put it this way, it is very difficult to fight with another Christian if you're thanking God for them. <laughs> it is very hard to gossip about them if you are praying about them before the throne of God. It's very difficult to hold a grudge against another Christian when you are saying, God, I'm praying for all of the Christians. He, Paul was not selective. So in a, in a church of this size or any size, there's all kinds of different uh, personality types. Did you know this? Yeah. Some of them are a little more interesting to get along with, correct? I won't identify them, but uh, I do know that as a type A person, if you're not type A, it's hard for me. You're much more laissez-faire, much more laid back, que sera, sera, I am not. Uh, and so, you know, so it, I have to pray and thank God for you. That that's how he wired you. And may he help you understand the need to be type A. But, um, 
But it's, but it's thanking God for everybody, all the different kinds of Christians that he puts in your life, the ones that are super educated, the ones that didn't get out of the sixth grade, the ones that have a great career, the ones that have no career. But you thank God for all of them. They're all part of the body of the Christ. How often do you do that? And do you let them know that I pray for you? So I would challenge you, uh, let some Christians around you know uh, that you either are praying for them or you're going to start praying for them. And just, and, and just giving thanks for them. That's what he did. He gave thanks for them. Number two, you need to mention their performance to build them up. Verse three, he says, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. So he, he's going he's gonna to move from saying, I give thanks about you when I think about you to I need to mention specific things that I'm thankful for. So this isn't, this isn't you just saying, thank God for you, all the Christians that you've put at my church. I, you know, I love them all. Uh, it, it's not, no, it's a specific. This is saying, Lord, when I think about so-and-so, when I look at their life, this is what I see that I'm thankful for. So this means you're really paying attention to the Christians around you. So he's going to identify three things that he sees in their lives that, that he's got to give thanks for. It's their performance, their spiritual performance. Number one is the work of faith. So what does that exactly mean? Well, think about it. The, the Jews that became Christians left Judaism and the love of the law uh, and love of ritual for a love relationship with the Messiah who fulfill, fulfilled the law. Uh, they totally changed their hair paradigm completely. Uh, and they had faith in Paul's word that Jesus had died for their sins and that was buried and rose again on the third day. And they believed the evidence that he gave them as a witness uh, and they entrusted their lives to that Messiah who saved them. So they have great faith. Uh, the, the Gentiles who left polytheism looked at the Grecian uh, uh, mythological system or the Roman mythological system and saw it completely bankrupt. And all systems that don't, that they're not of Christ are bankrupt. Because you only find purpose and meaning when you have a relationship with your creator, Jesus. And so they looked at all of the works and things they had to do, burning incense to the gods. And, and every time they would go to a, a uh, a, a, a statue and see a statue of Caesar that was supposedly where Caesar was and they're thinking well, it's, it's just stone no but that's where Caesar is well he's not really their mom it's just stone and when they left all of that vanity and trusted Christ it was all based on their faith and the evidence that was given unto them uh, but it says it's faith uh, he calls it the work of faith so what exactly does that mean in the Jewish culture the work of faith uh, that kind of premise means uh, Outright charity, showing works of sacrificial charity. Uh, that's caring for the poor. That's caring for and visiting the sick. That's uh, going to the hospital, like in our day and age. That's doing anything that you can do in your life to touch the lives of the needy around you, whether it's a single mother, single father, children that, uh, that need help because they lost their father, whatever it is. You are looking at the situation, and you have faith in the God who saved you enough to where you will step out and do works for him loving works of other people. It's one thing to say to somebody, uh, that's too bad about your situation, I'll be praying for you. And it's a whole other thing to be of the mindset, I'm going to show up on Monday morning and help you with whatever it is to help you over the, the hurdle that you're facing. It's, it's putting uh, uh, flesh and bones to your faith. That's what they did. They had work of faith. Uh, we have that kind of church. I see it all the time. Uh, great faith here, but, but a faith that touches lives. That, that are needs. There's a lot of times when I go to the hospital, uh, I'm not the first person to get there to see whoever it is that's in the hospital because their whole small group has showed up before me. They, they beat me there. Uh, and uh, awesome. 
What are they doing? Work of faith. Work of faith. So if anybody in that particular church had a mate who left them high and dry with little children, that church will come along inside them and say, you know what? Your husband might have deserted you, but your church won't because here we are. Um, if a marriage needed mending, that church, would, would the people would step forward and say, hey, we will do whatever it takes uh, to help you get your marriage to a better place. We'll put the time invested into you to help you learn how to love each other. That was that kind of church. It's a work of faith. You have to ask yourself, when I look at the Christians around me, do I commend them for a work of faith? And am I engaged in works of faith? The second thing he said is, I praise you for your labor of love. Um, Danker's Greek lexicon to the New Testament defines the word labor in Greek as, quote, to engage in activity that is burdensome. <laughs> Did you hear me? Because there's another word in work in Greek for work. It, that's not the word used here. This word means you're really working. So look at it this way. The, and not to diminish the, the, the person who stands with the road sign to tell you you can, you can go or not go. You see these people? Okay, like that's their job. They stand there and then... You know, they got a walkie-talkie talking to the other person so you don't run into somebody head on. And, and so they're telling you to go by. Okay, but who would want that roadside job when it's 110 degrees outside, 90% humidity? That's a rough job. But, but that's one kind of job. The, the guys that came over to my house uh, this last year and trimmed and, and well, took out my 100-foot tulip poplars, wow. The, the one guy that did all the climbing, he, he was just a little, little short, stocky guy. Wow, did he work? He, it was unbelievable watching him work with a big saw way up, 80, 90 feet up in the air. I, I, I couldn't believe what, what he was doing. That's a whole nother kind of labor. The guy on the ground with the joystick, with the saw and the crane and everything. Well, that's another kind of, that's kind of a cruise job. The guy up in the tree with cleats on, whole nother thing. And so when, when Paul looks at this church, he says, you know, I, I need to tell you what I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for your, your faith that works. But I'm also thankful for you guys really know how to work hard as a church. You don't just work a little bit. I mean, you really work. You're like the guy up in the tree. Now, this is another thing. When I look at the church and I ask myself, is this a hard-working church? Absolutely. Because I see it all the time. Hard-working church where people serve. Now, I know there's some that, that aren't serving yet because you're new. That's okay. Checking out the church. But, but you shouldn't sit here and soak. You should serve. Uh, and sitting and soaking is not a spiritual gift. <laughs> Did you hear me? Uh, taking your life and your, how God has equipped you and plugging that into the church is what he wants from me. He wants you to serve. Well, how does he want me to serve? He wants me to serve hard. He wants me to work hard. So what does that mean? Well, let's break it down to our particular uh, life and culture. Um, that kind of love for other people that you will work hard for them means that you would drive a shuttle bus on a Sunday morning. I mean, we should have so many shuttle bus drivers that it clogs the system. And we got a great group of people that drive, but we can always use more. And that's extra work because you got to get up to pick up people in the parking lot like at 8 o'clock to get them here and do your route and then come back so you can go to church. I mean, that's extra work. But God's face shines on that. We got a lot of people that do that. Uh, if you have this kind of work motif, it means that uh, you will park in the park and ride. So that people can actually, who don't, you know, they're new. We turned away cars here last week because there was no parking. Sad. Too many people. A awesome problem to have. But we need more people parking at the parking ride. Does it take extra effort to get down there? Uh-huh. 
And you got to, you know, you park your car, you got to get out, you got to wait with other Christians uh, at, you know, the stop and wait for the bus to come. They typically come quickly because we have devoted workers, but, but that's, a, that's another kind of work. You know, it's easier just to, well, I'm just going to park here. You know, let somebody else do that. No, if you were Thessalonian in nature, you would say, no, my car's down there or horse or whatever. I don't know what they drove, but, uh, but it's, it's going to the inconvenience to, to do that work hard stuff, uh, serving in the bookstore, serving coffee, uh, all, all that's done here. Uh, the couple hundred people that volunteer to run the children's program, I think it takes 200 per Sunday. It's unbelievable. All the people who serve to run small groups uh, in the church, there's 800 something people in those small groups that open up their home and people leave. Is your home messier than when they got there? Probably. You know, did, did, uh, do you have to do a little bit of work after they leave? I would assume. But isn't it worth it? it it's that whole work thing. It's, it, it's the labor of love and working harder. And so Paul says, I praise you because you're the kind of church that knows how to work hard. Number three, he said, um, uh, you have patience and hope of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does this mean? Well, because the whole book is eschatological in nature, focusing on the end time or the coming of Jesus. Uh, that's woven all through First and Second Thessalonians. This is what this references. Uh, patience of hope. The Greek word hupomone is a preposition wedded to a verb. I've told you this before. You should know it by now. If you wed a preposition to a verb, you intensify the meaning. So if it means you are really going to hang on, this means if you put a preposition to the I'm going to remain, which is the word for uh, hupomone, uh, you're going to really remain. Like nothing's going to break your grip of waiting patiently for Jesus to return. I don't know how you're waiting for Jesus do you kind of wonder, like, what's taking him? Yeah, he's got a plan. He's working his plan. And until his plan is realized, you should be saying to yourself, nothing's breaking my grip for the hope I have in him. Nothing. That's what they had. Despite their persecution, they had a great joy in the hope that at any moment Jesus can appear. They just wanted to be ready when he did appear. So they're being persecuted. They're being called names. They're being canceled. They're losing their jobs. People are being mean-spirited toward them, etc. And they just continually smiled at those folks and said, oh, we love you anyway. Oh, you people are not even from this planet. How, how can you be so positive? Jesus is coming back. Did you know that? And we have to give account for him when he appears. And we want to be ready for him. They, they had a patient hope. Do you have a patient hope or is it an impatient hope? Lord, what is taking you so long? Everything seems to be lined up and I've read all the prophecy and there's nothing needs to happen and get on with it. Sound the trumpet. No, he'll sound it in due time. You just be faithful till he shows up and be full of hope until he shows up and don't lose hope. And that, that's what Paul says when I think about you Christians there. Wow, what a, what a great church. You are full of great hope. That's our church. It's a church full of great hope. I mean, have you ever considered like where we are in the smack dab middle of well, I don't know, what do you even call it? Progressivism, uh, sin, uh, evil. And here God has planted a church, among others, that teaches the word of God, has people who love the Lord, people who are courageous in their faith, people who love each other, people who believe in absolute truth, and God blesses that church. Uh, that's Thessalonica. It's having that patient hope. And then the last thing he says when you build up people is mention their position. Uh, this is verses four and five, and it takes us a couple of seconds, but he says, knowing brethren, beloved of God, his choice of you, um, God chose you. Now, this could be a month-long sermon series, um, because the word here, ekloge in Greek, means to, choose, means to choose. So we have to stop and talk about this for a minute. So does God choose people for heaven? Yeah. Yeah. I heard George. George. Yes. Uh, 
Yes, he chooses people for heaven. Um, he chooses people to be part of his family. And he, there's other people that he doesn't choose. Uh, can those who are choose, chosen reject his choosing? Yes. Well, not really. If he chose you, you can't thwart the will of God. You can't thwart it. But you might delay it, but you're going to do it. Yeah. I only have a couple minutes. Yeah, but anyway. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, email me. So, so what I want to, we're going to look at this. <laughs> That's typically how my week goes. I preach, I get a bunch of emails. Yeah, it's just, and then I prepare another sermon. Yeah. So here, as we look at this concept of God choosing, uh, look, uh, before we get into some of the details, think about it this way. If you are saved, if you are a follower of Jesus, thank God that he chose you. Because that shows that he chose you. That you are his because you accepted the gospel of Christ that he said you were going to accept, but he gave you the free will to do it. So, so let's focus on God for just a minute. Number one, a couple things to think about. Number one, um, think about the person of God. Uh, he's omniscient. Omniscience means he knows all things at all times. Uh, Brian Davies uh, has written a book about St. Thomas Aquinas uh, on how to understand St. Thomas Aquinas. And it's about a 400-page book. I'm almost finished with it. Sometimes you've got to read books by guys how to read other guys. And, and Aquinas is not simple to read, but a great Christian mind. Uh, here's what he says about uh, God. He says, since God is unchangeable, it also follows that his knowledge is not discursive, i.e., number one, that God does not first know this and then know that, like us, or two, that he cannot pass from ignorance to knowledge. Or, as Aquinas writes, quote, God sees everything in one that is in himself. Hence, he sees everything at once and not successively. God is outside of time and space, not bound by time like we are. He sees all things, past, present, and future, as his current present. He, nothing gets by him because he knows all things. So did he know that I was going to trust him as Savior back in 1967? Yeah, he knew that. Did he give me the free will to do it? Yeah. Uh, does anyone understand how that works? No. No, moving on. <laughs> Number two, uh, God is providential. Uh, Dr. Uh, Wayne Grudem defines providence this way. We may define God's providence as follows. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he, number one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Two, cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act like they do, like molecules, the rain, clouds, etc. And three, he directs them to fulfill their purposes. So if he made an oak tree, what's it going to do? It's going to drop oaks and 10,000 little seeds per year per tree, and they're going to produce other oak trees. I mean, that's how we designed them. So uh, we know from Colossians 1, 16 and 17 and Hebrews 1, 3, Jesus is the glue of the cosmos. He holds it all together. I mean, he's the one who made it. He holds it all together, and he's providential in all of that. So that means every king, every kingdom, everything that happens in the world, God is omniscient of what happens, and he's providential, which means he's controlling all of those things to ultimately fulfill his purposes, to bring glory to the, the, to the Father. This is his plan. And so nothing can thwart what God providentially decrees. Number three, God is just. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, when he finally learned about the justice of God in chapter 4 of Daniel, verse 37 says, Now I, King Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all of his ways are just. Now think about this. Because God is just, it logically means that you have a free will. Think about it. Because God is just, it logically means you have a free will. Because if, 
He's holding you accountable for the decisions that you make. If you didn't have a free will and he holds you accountable for the decision you make, he would not be just by definition. You follow this? Or you're lying. You understand how this works? He gave you a free will to choose or not choose. Moral decisions, immoral decisions. Spiritual decisions, reject them, deny them, etc. He gave you the right to make decisions. And scripture, all throughout the scripture, says that he's just. He would be the epitome of injustice uh, if he's judging you and you don't have the free will to choose. But he gave you the free will to choose. And so that means his judgment of you will be just when you get to eternity and your decisions concerning him or against him will be made known. It's on you, not on him. Uh, number four, uh, does God choose some and not others? As I asked initially, answer is yes. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 7, he chose Israel to be his chosen people. Why? Because they're the least of all the peoples. He chose to speak in and through them and bring the Messiah through them. Uh, in the New Testament, he, he chooses as well. Uh, Acts 13, verse 48 says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. They were appointed. Huh? Yeah. Who appointed them? God. God. Uh, Ephesians 1, verse 4 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, because we have a free will to do that. Uh, in him, he predestined us as to the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ himself, according to the kind intention of his will. So it tells you, not only did he choose you, it tells you when he chose you. When he chose you. Before he even made the earth and there was a fall, he had already chosen you in his mind. But he gave you the free will to choose. And my last point, um, how did he choose? Uh, Henry Thiessen says this in his systematic theology. He says, Is election the sovereign act of God, whereby he chose some to salvation solely on the basis of sovereign grace, apart from merits or acts of the individual? Or is it the sovereign act of God, whereby he chose those whom he foreknew would respond to his gracious invitation? So did, you, did he know you were going to get saved? And then he chose you because of that? Or did he just flat out love you to choose you? Uh, I think it's that one. Why? Well, notice what Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, verse 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with the holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he granted to us in Jesus Christ from all eternity. Why did he choose you? Because he loved you. Don't worry about somebody who doesn't choose him. They have the free will to choose or not choose. But the fact that he chose you, he chose you based upon not anything that you do, but you're flat out, he, he, he chose to love you. Now, I've heard the argument before, well, that's absolutely not fair. It, it's absolutely fair. Because I'll tell you what fair would be. When Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, no one was chosen. The fact he looked down from heaven and said, I who am holy... I will choose X amount of people to be with me in heaven for all eternity is total grace and mercy from a holy God. So who am I with a finite mind and limited thinking and limited dimensionality to question God Almighty who is infinite in thinking and has dimensionality that I can't even grasp? Who am I to question the mystery of his choosing and my free will. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of the law. Moses said, hey, you're not going to understand everything about God, but the things that you do understand, enjoy them and teach them to your children. So I understand that God uh, does choose, and I'm glad he chose me because I chose him. Um, 
1 Thessalonians 5, he says, how'd you get chosen in Thessalonica? He says, our gospel didn't come to you in word only, but in the power of the Holy Spirit and a full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among yourselves. He said, when we showed up in Thessalonica and preached the gospel to you, you saw the power of God Almighty. You knew this wasn't like what you had been exposed to in false systems. You saw the Spirit of God working in this. He convicted you of your sin. You knew he was the Savior, and you came to him from the power of the gospel. If you are not a Christian, uh, I, my prayer is that, that you would come to, to sense the power of the gospel to redeem you. And the day you bow before him is the day you can say, Lord, thank you for choosing me. And I choose you. And he gives you the choice to do it. Uh, and you'll be responsible in eternity for what you chose. If you are a Christian, you should be encouraged. Why should you be encouraged? Uh, you should encourage other Christians because you are a special part of God's family. That didn't have to happen, but God said, no, I want to love you enough to make room in my dwelling place for you. The love of God is greater far than tongue can ever tell. Goes beyond the highest star, reaches the lowest of hell. The wandering child is reconciled by God's beloved son, the aching soul again made whole in priceless pardon when the love of God, how rich the psalmist says, and how pure, how measureless and strong it shall for evermore endure the saints and angels song. Who can understand the love of God? I can't. I can just enjoy it as I embrace the gospel. May God bless you greatly as you think about him today. Let's pray. God, thank you uh, for the greatness of the gospel, the depth and the mystery uh, that is resident in it. Um, challenges our thinking, deepens our faith, uh, humbles us like little children before your throne, and we praise you for who you are. Uh, work in our church in a great way that all the things we've talked about here today can be expanded in our church like it was in this ancient church. And we thank you for your love for us, for the power of the gospel to redeem. And we pray for those that need to be redeemed that they might choose you as their savior. Thank you for the greatness of the gospel of Christ and for the joy it is to know you. And we have great hope in your return. In Christ's name, amen.